Hey, girl. Hey, girl. Um, hi, fam. So, you guys, before we get to the before we get to the episode thing, mm-hmm. I wanted to let you guys know. So, you guys, we were supposed to be off this week. We were going to take the week off for the 4th of July. Right. But, girl, then we realized we had 13th, like, ready to go. We were kind of just sitting on it for next week. And we thought, you guys, why don't we put this out this week? And that way we can do it ad-free and just, like, do this amazing documentary and, like, give it to the people as, like, an extra, not a bonus episode, but just as, like, an extra episode. Right. And so here's what I want to say, you guys. I have been working on the editing of this episode. It's not super funny. This is not This is not so much the comedy part of the true crime comedy podcast. Mm, we, yeah. You and I recorded this episode um, right after the George Floyd murder and right when the protests were starting to happen. It was super important to, to us to do it and get it out there. Mm-hmm. We actually wanted to do this to learn to learn how to be better allies, to learn more about the real history of our country. And so we weren't super concerned with making jokes. It's not dry. There certainly are jokes in there, but it's not Grizzly Man, you guys. It's No, it most certainly isn't. Yeah, we we were here to learn. We did. We hope you do too. But if you think I went easy on Birth of a Nation, boy, do you have another thing coming. (laughs) Or Bill Clinton. We kind of both took Bill Clinton to the cleaners. (laughs) Good. Good. So anyway, we love you, you guys. Enjoy this ad-free episode uh, of 13th. It is a phenomenal documentary. I feel like everybody's gone and watched it in the last couple of months. But if you haven't, it's on Netflix. Go do it right now. Go, go, go. And enjoy the show. Enjoy. Hey, girl. Hey, girl. I have something to tell you. Oh, are you quitting? (laughs) You look like you're quitting. I've I've never said these words to you before. I don't know how it's going to go, but I have to tell you something. Oh, my God. I am not wearing pants right now. Now, listen, hold on a second. Uh huh. It is so hot and the windows are so closed and the AC is so not on as we record. I look like I ran a marathon. So I'm wearing like a tank top and I'm wearing those little shorts that I wear under any dress or skirt I wear when I go out in the world because the world is a horrible place. That's what I'm wearing. And you, I've never said those words to you, but girl, no. I'm not wearing pants. Here we are. Here we are. This is where we are. you guys before we get to the show just a reminder um if you're looking for some more laughter to get you through the dark times that we are currently finding ourselves in uh head on over to the patreon you guys there's over 140 full bonus episodes to download and binge right now girl it's where we do our series right so we uh wrapped up tiger king we're in the middle of mcmillions which you girl you are on fire for mcmillions mcmillions like is my anti-drug honestly like i get so high (laughs) talking about it i think because we're coming off of you know making a murderer the jinx series all this stuff where it's like, what? Now I just get to hang out with Doug Matthews and talk about McDonald's? Like, okay, that I, that I can do. I've never been hungrier for McDonald's in my life. Um, you guys, there's also ad-free versions of these episodes. There's after parties. We're doing quarantine check-ins once a week. Mm-hmm. There's ringtones. There's so much cool stuff. Go check it out. It's patreon.com slash Obsessed, or go to our website. Click on the Patreon link. Um, right. I want to remind you that we launched a new podcast. It's called Obsessed with Disappeared. It's uh, myself and Ellen Marsh recapping episodes of IDs Disappeared. It's real funny, but we also, of course, like TCO, take the cases very seriously. We take the victims very seriously. But if you're well, looking, sure, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't have it any other way. You pro- know, I wouldn't allow that shit. No, girl, I can't believe we don't send our episodes to you for approval before we put them up. And all seriousness, you know, now that we're saying it, 
I want it in my inbox, 9 a.m. tomorrow. That's what I want. Uh, so if you're looking for something funny, it's called Obsessed with Disappeared. Get it wherever you get your podcast. Girl, anything else from you this week? No, not a thing. <laughs> really, I mean, the world is... Just when you think it can't get worse, here it is. So let's, let's go to work, shall we? One out of four human beings with their hands on bars, shackled in the world, are locked up here in the land of the free. Khalif Browder was walking home from a party when he was stopped by police. Then they said, we're going to take you to the precinct, and most likely we're going to let you go home. And then I never went home. 13th Amendment to the Constitution makes it unconstitutional for someone to be held as a slave. There are exceptions, including criminals. The loophole was immediately exploited. What you got after that was a rapid transition to a mythology of black criminality. Some people got the real problem. Animals. That needed to be controlled. You better believe it. I'm only human. It became virtually impossible for a politician to run and appear soft on crime. The kinds of kids that are called super predators. Millions of dollars will be allocated for prison and jail facilities. Three strikes and you are out. It was an enormous burden on the black community, but it also violated a sense of core fairness. States were required to keep these prisons filled, even if nobody was committing a crime. It's so difficult to talk about mass incarceration because it has become heavily monetized. The focus is on taking people from prison, putting them in community corrections, parole and probation. How much progress is it really if now there's a private company making money off the GPS monitor? We now have more African Americans under criminal supervision than all the slaves back in the 1850s. We are the products of the history that our ancestors chose. Products of that set of choices that we have to understand in order to escape from it. Before we get into this, I want to say, like every fantastic documentary that's a little bit long that we cover, there's no way we're going to get to everything. This documentary is incredibly dense. There's so much to mm. it. You know, we're not scripted, so we're going to hit the points that really like spoke to us. But go watch 13th, because it is an absolutely incredible documentary. You can get it on Netflix. Yeah, and we took notes for our job, but you should take notes just as a human, I right. think. <laughs> just take notes and refer to them whenever whenever you need. How about that? You take notes, too. So we get this We get this one historian right at the top the first thing we hear is that history is not just stuff that happens by accident we are the products of the history that our ancestors chose if we're white if we are black we are products of the history that our ancestors most likely did not choose yet here we all are together the products of that set of choices and we have to understand that in order to escape from it and like, holy shit, way to like really say it in the simplest fucking terms. Right. So we, we learned some statistics that are that, that are meant to wake you up and just make you go, wait, really? And then Ava's going to spend the rest of the two hours explaining why that is. Yeah. And then you hate everything. So we learned that like from night, if you didn't already. Welcome to True Crime Obsessed, everybody. Welcome. <laughs> uh, so from like 1972, there were about 300,000 people in prison and now there are over 2 million and it just keeps growing. And the U.S. has the highest rate of incarceration in the world. A little country with 5% of the world's population having 25% of the world's prisoners 
one out of four, one out of four human beings with their hands on bars, shackled, in the world are locked up here in the land of the free. So it's called 13th, and the 13th Amendment of the Constitution makes it unconstitutional for someone to be held a slave. Great, I'm sure you're thinking. No. Right. Nope. <laughs> get those positive thoughts. Get them, right, get them right out of here. There's no time for these positive thoughts right now. Right. Because there are exceptions. There's a loophole. There are exceptions, including criminals. There's a clause, a loophole. If you have that embedded in the structure, in this constitutional language, then it's there to be used as a tool for whichever purposes one wants to use it. So what that means is that it can be it can be used in a tool in very dangerous ways. And it has been since the since its inception. Right. Because what we learn early on is that, you know, the whole economy of the South was built on slavery. The demise of slavery at the end of the Civil War uh, left the southern economy in tatters. Uh, And so this presented a big question. There are four million people who were formerly property and they were formerly kind of the integral part of the economic production system in the South. And now those people are free. And so what do you do with these people? How do you rebuild your economy? And so the way this amendment was written, they realized you could basically re-enslave slaves that had just been freed by criminalizing them. And we hear that, like, all of a sudden, black people in America, these former slaves, they're getting arrested for, like, the most minor infractions, like yeah. loitering or, like, I almost said crossing against the light. No, that was, that's no. a... <laughs> but, but the thing is, like, doesn't that sound familiar? These little infractions, like, it's still it's still happening. Yeah, and so it's like this, it's this way of re-enslaving slaving people and they have these photographs like they show this one photograph of this like field full of black children I mean these kids look like they are nine or ten years old in like prison uniforms it's so stark and chilling right and then we get this like false connection of black people and crime right and we learn like that was the rhetoric of the time go back and you know read the rhetoric that people use then They would say that the Negro is out of control, that there's a threat of violence uh, to white women. So the same sort of image we had of Uncle Remus and these genial kind of black figures was replaced by this rapacious, uh, you know, menacing Negro male evil uh, that had to be banished. And then we're at goddamn Birth of a Nation by D.W. Griffith. Birth of a Nation was uh, just a profoundly important cultural event. It's the first major blockbuster film, hailed for both its artistic achievement and for its political commentary. And when it was released, it had this rapturous response. You know, there were lines, you know, everywhere that it was being shown. I gotta say something, okay? (laughs) (laughs) My whole thing is this. I know we're not supposed to, like, judge art, (laughs) but fuck Birth of a Nation. Birth of a Nation, no. You can't, like, portray the KKK as heroic and romantic and then, oh my God, these black people are such threats. Like, mm mm-mm. And every image you see of a black person is a demeaned, animal-like image. Cannibalistic, animalistic. The image of the African-American male. This famous scene where a woman throws herself off a cliff uh, rather than be raped by a, a black male criminal. 
in the film, you see black people being a threat to white women. And they say that, like, Birth of a Nation really was Southern white America's retelling of what happened with the Civil War. So it erased the defeat of the South and replaced it with, like, a martyrdom, which is why the KKK is glorified. And then, and this was so eye-opening, we get this video from the National Democratic Convention in New York in 1924. At the National Democratic Convention in New York in 1924, it is estimated that at least 350 delegates were Klansmen. Wow, Democratic Party. Wow. wow. But then, you know, we're just learning that, like, during this time in the South, it was so bad. And, of course, black people are fleeing. And we see this map and we see where people are going. And it's like they're going to Los Angeles and they're going to Harlem and they're going to Boston and they're going to Atlanta. And they say this really incredible thing about how like the black people who were going to these cities weren't going there as like immigrants looking for a better life they were going there as refugees fleeing from terror refugees fleeing from terror and you know it wasn't that long ago everybody i know so Ava uses this cool technique where we, we see certain cases and certain horrible murders to kind of separate the times. Yeah. So right now we're at Emmett Till. And we, we've discussed Emmett Till on this podcast before. Yeah. The Chicago Negro boy. Emmett Till is alleged to have paid unwelcome attention to Roy Bryant's most attractive wife. He quote whistled at a white woman and they say that he got like grabby and and aggressive with her she complete this woman by the way this garbage woman completely recanted Mm -hmm. the story in 2017 they basically beat him to death and he suffered this horrible murder and so one of our talking heads says to us like so after that happened it became sort of unacceptable to engage in that kind of open terrorism they say open terrorism Then it shifted to something a little bit more More legal. Segregation. Jim Crow. Laws were passed that relegated African Americans to a permanent second-class status. I mean, that's the whole point of this documentary is that, you know, slavery, though abolished technically with the 13th Amendment, is reinstituted over and over again in American history. So we see it here first with uh, segregation, and then we're going to learn about it with, like, the war on drugs and then with the for-profit prisons. Right. So, you know, now we're into, you know, the civil rights movement and segregation and Jim Crow. And, you know, we're seeing, like... All of this footage. And you guys, like, I'm sorry. Like, it's supposed to be hard and uncomfortable. Seeing, like, lynched men and that footage, it's so famous and it's been recirculated a lot lately of that older man being pushed down the sidewalk. Uh, You know? That is so awful. And it's basically this, like, middle-aged to older man being, like, like, just walking in a neighborhood and this mob of white people just shoving him. Yeah. And he, like, doesn't know what to do. And they show that video over this track of Martin Luther King speaking. And I think we should start now preparing for the inevitable. And let us, when that moment comes, go into the situations that we confront with a great deal of dignity, sanity, and reasonableness. So as the civil rights movement is gaining steam, which is great, right? Crime rates are rising. But the thing is, so this documentary is very dense and it gives a lot of information and it I didn't get this until the second time I watched it. So we have all of these black activists and authors and like thinkers like that are our talking heads here and they're saying, "Yes, 
the the crime rate was increasing as the civil rights movement was gaining steam, but it's because that was when the baby boom generation were becoming adults. You guys, there were so many more people. It's just numbers. There's no correlation to the civil rights movement. Yeah, but politicians don't give a shit. They don't right. care, so they're going to use it. It became very easy for politicians then to say um, that the civil rights movement itself was contributing to rising crime rates and that if we were to give the Negroes their freedom, um, then we would be repaid as a nation with crime. So now in the, in the 70s, we've entered this era of what we call mass incarceration. And spoiler, we're still in it. And then suddenly Nixon is here screaming about the law. I have Jesus fucking Christ. Nixon is here. And not Cynthia. How much better would it be if it was Cynthia Nixon? Oh, right. Yeah. Richard Nixon. Sorry. <laughs> God. This is a nation of laws. And as Abraham Lincoln has said, no one is above the law, no one is below the law, and we're going to enforce the law, and Americans should remember that if we're going to have law. So right now, 1970, there's 357,000 people in prison. That number is going to go up and up and up. Right. And that begins with Nixon's war on crime. If there is one area where the word war is appropriate, it is in the fight against crime. Part of what he talked about was a war on crime, but that was one of those code words, what we might call dog whistle politics now, which really was referring to the black political movements of the day, black power, black panthers, the anti-war movement, movements for women's liberation and gay liberation at that time, which Nixon felt compelled to fight back against. You know, I just wanted to say that there was something about Nixon's war on crime that really stood out to me, especially given what's going on in the world now. And that's that part of his war on crime was to massively fund police departments. Federal spending for local law enforcement will double. Time is running out for the merchants of crime and corruption in American society. He doubles the funding for local police departments. Mm-hmm. And and Clinton does it. He like triples it later down the road. Oh, oh we'll get to him. We'll, we'll yeah, sit yeah. him down and, and give him a whole, a whole talking to momentarily. Remember when we all loved Clinton and we thought we were on the right side of history and today Honestly, I learned that we no, were not. Honestly, no. Not after watching this. I was like, what the fuck is all this? I know. I, this? At one point, I actually said alone in a room Hillary no I'm mad at everybody at this point leave Chelsea out of it she's done nothing wrong or like Bill's brother Roger who was a saxophonist in the house band for the designing women crew did you know that only you know that only you know that (laughs) this is why you're here this is why we have you on the pod for these kinds of little tidbits so Anyway, you know, we live in an era now where we are talking about defunding the police. And you guys, Mm -hmm. it's not a crazy idea. There's a a town or city in New Jersey where they did it. Like, it's a very local issue and, like, different municipalities need different things and it's a complicated thing. But, like, saying defunding the police, I think to some people sounds crazy. It's not. And and it's happening in Minneapolis. Like, the the Minneapolis City Council voted in a veto-proof majority to defund the police. They're going to do public safety in a new way and I can't wait to see what they do. But You guys, shit is happening. It's happening. Things are happening. But like the the blanket, like just throwing money at police departments is what made this problem worse. So now Nixon's like, we must wage what I have called a total war against the public enemy. Number one, dangerous drugs. You guys, the war on drugs. A war on drugs. And that utterance uh, gave birth to this era where we decided to deal with drug addiction and drug dependency as a crime issue rather than a health issue. Hundreds of thousands of people were being sent to jails and prisons for simple possession of marijuana, for low-level offenses. 
imagine how different the world would be if we had decided that drug addiction was a health issue and not a crime issue. Just that one simple fucking thing under Richard Nixon. Imagine if that had been different. I know. I have that note too. And the other thing I want to say here is that Nixon really doubles down on the word abuse. Drug abuse. America's public enemy number one in the United States is drug abuse. In order to fight and defeat this enemy, it is necessary to wage a new all-out offensive. I really noticed that he was talking about drug abuse. Like, drug abuse is a choice you make. It's a thing that you do that is bad and wrong. Whereas he didn't say drug addiction, which Uh is just not your fault, you know? Wow. Yes. really. And it's speaking of weaponizing words, like when you say abuse instead of addiction, that really fucking stood out to me. But on that yeah. note, if you'll come this way here on our right, we have the <laughs> Reagan era. And raise your right hand and repeat after me. I, Ronald Reagan, do solemnly swear. I, Ronald Reagan, do solemnly swear that I will. Fake and our friend Angela Davis goes. The election of Ronald Reagan was uh, uh, in many ways transformative in a negative sense the election of ronald reagan was transformative Mm. in a negative way (laughs) not in a good way (laughs) not the good transformative you guys Um, and so reagan takes nixon's idea of the war on drugs and and basically supersizes it yeah someone here brilliantly says like reagan took this rhetorical war and made it a real one so now this modern war on drugs was declared in 1982 and the thing is like polls from from back in the day drugs really weren't a major issue for people like they didn't really care but reagan insisted on making it an issue for them because he had to he had to push this war on drugs i mean look i gotta tell you this like war on drugs i remember it viscerally from my youth like i remember the just say no campaign you guys we see the actual commercial this is your brain this is your brain on drugs Mm -hmm. this is your brain this is drugs this is your brain on drugs I remember when I was a kid thinking that drugs were so prevalent because this shit was all over TV. Girl, this is not a joke. I remember having an actual fear that kept me up at night that I was going to go to middle school and someone was going to like force cocaine up my nose. Like they were going to hold my arms behind my back and like force drugs up my nose. It was cocaine, not weed. I don't know. <laughs> because weed was the gateway drug and all this, yeah. you know? like No, because it was going to be something that was going to be like immediately addicting and then I was just going to be like, I was going to be on drugs for the rest of my life also we get like a, a nancy reagan moment here where she's like sitting in an interview or something for like a just say no thing and ronald reagan is talking and nancy reagan looks so fucking out of it like she looks like she is on the drug she is telling the kids not to take her she eyes can, she are... could use a little weed honestly just relax <laughs> calm down go to bed i know have a drink, Nancy. <laughs> Remember Leslie Noper? She's like, you need some sleep. You need to go home and go to bed. Get into bed. Go to bed. Well, girl, guess what happens? Guess who makes her debut in the middle of the war on drugs? Who? Crack cocaine. Oh, I hate her. Steve Young reports on a new kind of cocaine called crack. It's dangerous. It's deadly. It will kill you. We had this drug that could be marketed in very small doses, relatively inexpensively. This was going to just take over communities and particularly African-American communities. And this is where it's like, so crack was like a black inner city issue and cocaine was the rich white suburban issue. So that's why like cocaine is in like the Wolf of Wall Street and American Psycho because it's all these like finance bros. I'm sure, I'm sure not all finance bros, but 
I'll, I'll believe it when I see it. Yeah. Um, and, you know, so, <laughs> like. Uh, Sounds like you've been around the block with the finance bros, girl. No, I have not in that way. I say. I don't mean, no, I didn't. I, I've been socially distancing myself from the finance bros well before it was, it was necessary. So Congress, during this time, established mandatory sentences for possession of crack, which they were separating from the powder cocaine. Congress, in virtually record time, established mandatory sentencing penalties for crack that were far harsher than those for powder cocaine. The same amount of time in prison for one ounce of crack cocaine that you get for 100 ounces of powder cocaine. So obviously this was a much harsher punishment situation for people of color because it was people of color who did crack cocaine versus the powder cocaine. Right. And but just before we take one more step, can we address the fact that Newt goddamn Gingrich is here? Also, his name is Newt. For the youngins, for the ch- children gather around. Yeah, so anyone who doesn't remember Newt fucking Gingrich, he was like the, the ultra-conservative speaker of the house in the 90s. He was the guy who tried to tie all kinds of legislation to, like, conservative Christianity. Like, I remember growing up as the son of, like, a liberal lesbian. Like, Newt Gingrich was the boogeyman. But and- Newt has the nerve... To say a lot of shit right to my face, and I don't appreciate it because it's it's a little too late. We absolutely should have treated crack and, and cocaine uh, as exactly the same thing. I, th- I think it was an enormous uh, a burden on the black community, but it also fundamentally violated a sense of core fairness. The rage I feel that he has the audacity to sit there and say this now, when there are people still serving sentences today based on the decisions he made in the 90s. It makes me crazy, girl. I just have notes with about 50,000 exclamation points. But he's not the only one. Like, we're going to have to fucking deal with Bill Clinton later when he's yelling at a bunch of Black Lives Matters protesters. What the fuck was that, girl? <laughs> we're going to get there. We are going to fucking get there. But, like, who are these assholes? And, like, this is what all of our talking heads say to us now. They're like, these fucking people can come back now and say, oh, we made a mistake. We shouldn't have done it that way. I see the error of my ways. But they knew when they were doing it. They knew what they were doing. It's not like they learned. They right. knew at the time what they were doing was incredibly unfair and racist. And they didn't care because all they cared about was winning elections. And the thing is, Newt's whole tone, Newt, I can't believe I'm talking about a person like Newt. I know. <laughs> I know. Newt's whole tone in like 2016 or 2018 when this came out is very like there's not an apology in sight he's not no. he doesn't have his head in his hands he's very like it was a shame you know i really wanted the extra buttery chardonnay but they only right. have this one that's like mildly buttery and oh well i guess dinner would be salvaged if only we had the buttery chardonnay it could have been better i gotta tell you he'd have a point on that i'm just saying i'm not on newt's side but an extra buttery chardonnay does go a long way to remedy a bad dinner there's never anything that is made better by an extra buttery chardonnay <laughs> Okay? I disagree with Newt on a lot of things. And one of those things. Look, you and I have a true emotional disconnect when it comes to white wine. And we're just going to have to deal with it and move forward. But we have a true connection on basically everything else. Yeah. I don't need the wine. That's true. You know, I'm going to pick my battles here. So this section ends with my best friend Angela Davis saying that, like, the war on drugs was really a war on communities. And then somebody else says it felt genocidal. And again, I really like a big gay gaspy inhale of breath when I heard that. Because I bet that's true. I bet if you were a black person in America at that time during the war on drugs, I bet it did feel genocidal. Absolutely. So now we're like in the media section and we get this incredible woman who tells us black people, black men and black people in general are overrepresented in news 
as criminals. When I say overrepresented, that means they are shown as criminals more times than is accurate, that they are actually criminals, right? Based on FBI statistics. So like the footage doesn't match the statistics. So it's like, and just because you're arrested doesn't mean you're charged with anything, but people don't know that. You know what I mean? You know, girl, I almost can't think of any time that I can like pinpoint being like, oh yeah, there's a white guy in handcuffs on TV. I can't think of a time. Honestly, like Florida cops episodes where it's right. just like, I, I mean, you know, like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, but I, 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 I completely get what you're saying. And the thing is, that was the point. Right. So we're leaving the Reagan era. We, we dip into the Bush era sort of just long enough to learn that Republicans keep winning these elections because they're seen as tough on crime and and the Democrats are seen as weak on crime. But guess what, girl? We got some new Democrats. We got a new style of Democrat in town, you guys. Do we? They're a new generation of Democrats, Bill Clinton and Al Gore, and they don't think the way the old Democratic Party did. They've sent a strong signal to criminals by supporting the death penalty. The Democrats had had their asses handed to them for the, like, the previous three election cycles, and they had to do something. Newt Gingrich was like, yeah, it was like conservatives will protect you, and Democrats are the part party of lawlessness, and we won on that every time. So Bill right. Clinton and Al Gore ran on a platform of being super hard on crime, and they won. Right. So we get this 1994 crime bill. Oh, my which- God has shaped basically the rest of our laws and government and society from the day it was signed to now. And we have to undo it. And there's like seemingly no way to undo it, but we got to undo it. So there are a couple things that happened in this federal crime bill. So there are a couple things that you know these terms, right? Mandatory minimums. Right. Three strikes and you're out. This truth in sentencing law, which means that you have to stay in prison for at least 85% of the time. That omnibus crime bill was responsible for a massive expansion of the prison system. System. And beyond that, it provided all kinds of money and perverse incentives for law enforcement to do a lot of the things that we nowadays consider to be abusive. They wanted more cops on the street. They wanted to lock up more people. They were just yeah. rounding up black people and throwing them in jail. What President Clinton did in 1994 is actually far more harmful than his predecessors because he actually built that infrastructure that we see today, the militarization, all the way down to small rural police departments that have SWAT teams. And again, we see this kind of notching up uh, the number of people who are being arrested uh, at every level and this kind of exploding prison population. So then we get, like, old man Bill Clinton, like, probably around the 2016 election when Hillary was Mm -hmm. running. And he's saying, look, it was a mistake. Yeah, he's talking to the NAACP and just saying, like, I fucked everything up and there's kind of nothing I can do about it now, but vote for my wife. But I want to say a few words about it. Because I signed a bill that made the problem worse. And I want to admit it. There were longer sentences. And most of these people are in prison under state law, but the federal law set a trend. And that was overdone. We were wrong about that. And this is where Deborah Hall says, like, look, I'm glad that he sees the error of his ways. But he knew. He knew what he was doing back then. He was trying to win elections just like the other side. And then, you guys, this is where we get Bill Clinton on stage screaming at Black Lives Matters protesters. I don't know how you would characterize the gang leaders who got 13-year-old kids hopped up on crack and sent them out onto the street to murder other African-American children. Maybe you thought they were good citizens. She didn't. She didn't. You are defending the people who kill the lives you say matter. Tell the truth. 
Someone thought this was a good idea. I don't know who the hell it is. Someone thought it was a good idea to have someone who can barely talk above a whisper try screaming. <laughs> that is the problem I don't have, girl. I'm really good at screaming. Not yet. Drink that tea. You gotta, you gotta take care of those vocal cords, girl. It's the money maker. We need that I, shit. Don't fuck it up. We need it. And don't so, fuck it up. And don't fuck it up. And so he's screaming like to blame the crack dealers who got these 13 year olds addicted oh and then sent them out to kill other black kids. Maybe you don't care, but Hillary cares. And you're defending the people who kill the lives you say matter. Hold. I know. Hold on. Rich now. old white man screaming at these protesters. You guys, it is the most tone deaf thing. I Everything know. about this was a was a big swing and a miss. And it's like you have to take a little bit more responsibility here. Like he yeah. did something that seems like can't like it can't be undone. Right. Can I just say something though here? Like this is where this movement right now that we're in right now feels different. And mm. everybody, all the smart people that I'm listening to are saying, okay, like trepidatiously this feels different like sure. we are actually seeing the shit like in Minneapolis with them defunding the police department and mm-hmm. real things happening I mean so today the day that we are recording this is the day of George Floyd's funeral it's been two weeks since he was murdered there are still protests in the street every single night you know this this moment feels different and that's why I'm saying that like this documentary sort of comes at a perfect time because it's not that there's ever really a, a sense of hopelessness in this documentary but it's like in a moment like this where it's like it feels like we can't ever overturn that bill right but now we're kind of doing it just undoing it one piece at a time it it, it, it the moment feels i don't know it feels like there's something is happening yeah so anyway you guys we mentioned it at the top we're gonna have to skip some stuff here for time but this middle section really goes into various black leaders who were either deported or fled the country or were murdered or were in other ways like taken out of their presence in the movement and how that left the black community in a position to not necessarily be able to defend themselves Mm -hmm. and it's a really moving beautiful part but this episode would be 45 hours long if we focused on it and again take your notes watch it and take notes take your notes and the Angela Davis story is amazing it's so good you guys oh my god so we gotta bring it down though yeah um it's 2016 and you remember all those numbers we were reading 300,000 500,000 there are now in two in 2016 over 2.3 million people in prison that number should should mystify you and make you furious really it really does do that to me it 2. should 3 million people in prison it should be as infuriating as it is confusing so this is where we we tell the Trayvon Martin story and mm. you know we get the 911 call we hear this like the head of the neighborhood watch sees this kid walking through a neighborhood he's got his hand in his waistband and he's a black male Are you following him? Yeah, okay, we don't need you to do that. We hear them scuffle, and then we hear a gunshot. And we also we also hear the cops, t- the dispatcher say, "Do not follow him. Do not take action. We do not Don't need you do to that. do that. We do not need you to do that. Yeah, we need you to go home and go to bed. Yeah. And so they bring in George Zimmerman, the shooter, and they don't arrest him. The police could not arrest Zimmerman because of this Florida law called Stand Your Ground, which says you can kill someone if you feel threatened. Even though it was Zimmerman who had pursued Martin throughout the neighborhood with a gun. 
And, you know, as we all know, George Zimmerman goes to trial and he gets off because of this stand your ground law. Which is interesting to me because he literally hunted Trayvon Martin around the neighborhood. So right. he was not in any danger. It's not like Trayvon Martin kicked down his his door with an Uzi while he was watching cops, probably. Like, right. he he hunted Trayvon Martin. So stand your ground is bullshit. So I'm sure, like, I, I was thinking, like, how does stand your ground even become a thing? Right. So glad you asked. <laughs> There's something called Alec, <laughs> and it's the worst. Alec sounds like the name of a high school lacrosse player who just got baked and wrecked his dad's sob. But, <laughs> but incredibly, it's actually even worse. Alec is a political lobbying group. Alec is a political lobbying group. They write laws, they write laws and, give and give them to Republicans. Stand your ground, Stand your ground. Was, written by Alec. was written by Alec. It's the worst. Yeah. It's, a, it's, a, it's like a private club and its members are politicians and corporations. So it's like right. corporate lobbyists are like secretly voting as equals with lawmakers. So corporations like, I don't know, like a Walmart, let's say. Right. Walmart, <laughs> who is like the biggest seller of bullets or AR-15s or all this bullshit where you can get like your fucking baloney and a yeah. gun. Great. So the, the corporations would be like helping these lawmakers introduce certain laws that would give the corporations money. So Walmart is like, I super love stand your ground because then the sales of guns and bullets are going to go up and that's going to make us money. That right. is what ALEC is and it stands for American Legislative Exchange Council but it's ALEC and it sucks. And of course all of these laws that they want enacted negatively affect communities of color. That's the point here. Then we learn about Correctional Corporation of America which was like one of America's first like for-profit like prison companies. And they we see this ad that is it's like a joke. Like if, if someone pitched it on like a sketch show they be like that's too on the nose that's way too right. obvious because it's this wholesome company of like doo, 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 right. doo, 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 doo. every day we serve our communities from small towns to large cities at more than 60 locations across our country as a nation's fifth largest correctional system we build own and manage secure correctional facilities and it's like a for-profit prison it's just I, i'm like what what am i seeing so of course C cca is involved with alec just great and the thing about this cca this this company that makes these for-profit prisons this was the thing that like made my blood boil these folks started making contracts with states and they had to protect their investment so the states were required to keep these prisons filled even if nobody was committing a crime and in the late 80s and early 90s, this became a growth industry, unlike very few growth industries in America's history. Uh, it was absolutely uh, a model guaranteed to succeed. The states had to keep the prisons full whether crime was happening or not. So the states, like, literally are incentivized to, like, pick up people for no reason or, like, put people in jail for low offenses or not let people out. And then you see the insides of these prisons and you see all of these people who are just, like, suffering. And I was, like, thinking about my family. Like, these people are suffering. They're away from their families. Like, and many of them who have served a reasonable amount of time or shouldn't have served time at all. And they're just stuck there for no reason. For no mm -hmm. reason other than the fact that the state signed a contract with this bullshit company. Yeah, it's it's a mess. And it's still happening. It's horrible. And then, so like, the next story that Ava, the filmmaker, sort of doubles down on is the Khalif Browder story. Yeah. And there, look, there's like a multi-part documentary that we're going to do on the Patreon sometime mm -hmm. really soon mm -hmm. about this story. But basically, this kid, he's like a young kid. He's on his way home from a party with his friends. And he gets stopped by the the cops 
for no reason. He gets stopped by the cops. They accuse him of a crime that we later find out that he did not commit. Stealing a backpack. Again, these little petty crimes. Then they said, we're going to take you to the precinct and most likely we're going to let you go home. And then I never went home. They told you that you could post bail. Yes, that's correct. $10,000. Yes. And of course. I I couldn't make that. hmm. My family couldn't pay it. This is another whole thing where it's like, it's the chains of poverty that these young people get sent to prison. They don't have the money for bail. And so they get stuck in there. And they literally say, you are treated better in our system if you're a rich person who's guilty than you are if you're a poor person who's innocent. Because they don't care about innocence or guilt. No, they don't. And so Cory Booker's here to basically talk shit about all those procedurals everyone's watching and binging (laughs) now that you're in quarantine. And I think what most Americans think of, because they've watched so many courtroom dramas and things like that. They think that criminal justice system is about judges and juries. Well, well, that's really stopped being the case. Yeah, that's not a thing anymore. That's yeah. not a thing. Because if everyone went to trial, they say that the system would shut down. So usually the prosecutor's like, we can make a deal where you serve three years or you can go to trial and risk getting 30. What do you want to do? What sounds by, better to you? And by the way, for this thing that you didn't do, but now that right. you're here and you didn't have the money to get yourself out, you're we got to do something. So it's either three years or 30 years. What do you want? And then if you go to trial and you get convicted, they punish you. They give you an extra long sentence because you decided to take your constitutional right for a trial. And so- this is where the, the it comes back to the Khalif Browder story because he refused to take a plea deal. He insisted on going to trial. I felt like I was done wrong. I felt like something needed to be done about this. I felt like something needs to be said. If I just cop out and say that I did it, nothing's going to be done about it. I didn't do it. No justice is served. And because they didn't have anything on him, they didn't really have anything to try him for, they just did that thing where they sent him to Rikers with no charges for three years. And he like wasted away, quote, waiting for a trial. And he was in solitary for two of those years. And we see it. We hear it from him. We, you know, we and we see the video. I mean, these this videos video, are guys. just unreal. <sighs> we see this one video where he's in handcuffs and a guard who's, I don't know, two, three times his size mm-hmm. is walking him away, at, like just sort of leading him down a hallway and for no reason at all just slams him to the ground. And he's pushing his head into the floor. This Khalif Browder kid looks like he weighs a, like 100 pounds soaking wet. Yeah, he's a kid. He's and a kid. all of a sudden there's four cops on him and it's like basically just torture. And he was there for three years. I was scared all day because... I didn't know where it would come from. I don't know any, where any harm would come. Khalif suffered through so many beatings, both by the people he was locked up with and the guards. He ended up attempting suicide on several occasions. And then ultimately, they just let him go because they didn't have anything. They, the state couldn't go to trial because they didn't have anything on him. And because Khalif Browder spoke up. He right. said, I'm not going to take the plea deal. Let's go. I didn't do it. Stealing a backpack? Like, no, he spoke up. And one of our activists says they punished him because he had the audacity not to take a plea deal. And so finally, these charges are dropped. And now he's out in the world. And two years later, he takes his own life at home in the Bronx. So, like, this is what we're talking about. Prisons, Prison is meant to break you down. It's not there to rehabilitate. It's not there for treatment. It's there to completely break you down. Yeah, and it's like, as we're getting to the end of the documentary, all of a sudden it's like, oh okay, things might get better. Like, all of a sudden, it's the 2016 election, and we see Hillary Clinton, and she's, you know, she's apologizing for her husband and saying we're going to reform everything he did, and she's talking to Black Lives Matter, and all of these people talking about how they want to embrace reform, but then Angela Davis is back to tell us basically the thesis of this whole documentary. Historically, when one looks at efforts to create reforms, they inevitably lead to more repression. 
So remember, mm-hmm. when slavery ended, it didn't really end because all they had to do was arrest you for doing nothing and they were able to re-enslave you. When the Voting Rights Act and the uh, Civil Rights Act were enacted, then all of a sudden the war on drugs and the mm-hmm. war on crime, you right. know, basically and- like recriminalizing all of these people. And so, you know, and so that's what she's saying here. Like, you know, in 2016, we were sort of hopeful. And then we get Trump. And we get, remember that footage of the man being pushed? We get yes. that. Like you hear Trump at his rallies, right? And it's kind of a compilation. And it's back to that that video from the beginning of that black man being pushed by that mob of white people. And you hear all of the insane shit that Trump would say. In the good old days, this doesn't happen because they used to treat them very, very rough. And when they protested once, you know, they would not do it again so easily. I'd like to punch him in the face, I'll tell you. I love the old days. You know what they used to do to guys like that when they were in a place like this? They'd be carried out on a stretcher, folks. It's done so beautifully and and like it's and effectively because it's you know the footage of of the the hose like people getting sprayed by the hose and getting getting beaten right. at the diner counter and all this and it's like again the more things change the more they stay the same I mean he's quoting Nixon essentially in a lot of this he's inciting this violence and the the footage side by side is exactly the same that's what really this Black Lives Matter moment is about this question of whose life do we recognize as valuable. The opposite of criminalization is humanization. Uh, that, that's the one thing I hope that people will understand. It's about rehumanizing us as a people and us, right, as a people, all of us. Yeah. Oh, I'm getting, I'm getting chills and I, I'm getting a little emotional because I really feel like what we're seeing in the world right now feels like that. It feels like a coming together. It's not just one city. It's like all the cities in America. And it's not just America. It's cities all over the world. And it's not just black people. It's white people. It's white people lining up in front of black people in certain places. Mm. You know, it's like this moment feels, I'm going to say it a million times, it just feels different. Yeah, and this film ends with with, uh, such a fantastic call to action. We get this guy, Brian Stevenson, who's been with us the whole time, and he says, People say all the time, well, I don't understand how people could have tolerated slavery. How could they have uh, made peace with that? How could people have gone to a lynching and participated in that? How did people uh, make sense of this segregation, this uh, white and colored only drinking? That's so crazy. I just, if I was living at that time, I would have never tolerated anything like that. And the truth is we are living at this time and we are tolerating it. And then end. And I'm like, I got to do more today and every day like holy shit he's absolutely right like what what an effective call to action where it's like but you're tolerating it aren't you this documentary is such an education and it's going to make you uncomfortable and it's going to make you cry and you might have to take a break from it but take those notes and do what you got to do <laughs> i'm saying it You guys, we did 13th. I'm so glad. I'm so glad we did it, girl. I am too. Um, You guys, look, if you're looking for more laughs, some more fun laughs, good times, join us in the Patreon. 
Over 140 full bonus episodes to download a binge right now. Girl, it's like McMillions we're doing right now, Don't F with Cats, Tiger King, Making a Murderer, Serial. Lorena, OJ, Aaron Hernandez. Oh, uh, we always forget that one. Menendez uh, Brothers. Yeah. You know where to find it. It's also ad-free versions of these episodes, ringtones, the whole deal. You know where to find it. Uh, girl, what are we doing next? We are starting Trial by Media. I'm so excited. Yes. I know me too. So you guys, we're going to do all five episodes of Trial by Media because we've really been loving doing this coverage of like the topical cases that you all know about and that's basically what Trial by Media is, right girl? Yeah, so even though there are a bunch of episodes, they're all completely different. They're like standalone documentaries so we're doing all of them as if they're their own documentary because guess what? That's exactly what they are. Yeah, and uh, BTW, you guys, our good friend Sky Borgman who directed Abducted in Plain Sight, she directed episode two. I'm so excited. But girl, what's the first one? What's episode one next week? It's called The Talk Show Murder. I didn't know anything about this so this oh is my I'm God. scandalized. Scandalized. I grew up on this. So this was the Jenny Jones murder. This was this gay guy who went on Jenny Jones to admit a crush on his straight friend. And like three days later, his straight friend murdered him. Like, I mean, I was one of those talk show kids. I watched like Ricky, Maury, Sally, Jesse, Raphael. I, that I was, was into- <laughs> We had, uh, that was not, I didn't do that. I wasn't doing that. I was not watching Jenny Jones. I'm so sorry. So I'm, this is going to be quite an education on a lot of levels for me. I have a feeling. Yeah, it's a really sad story, but it's a gr- it it's a great episode. So get ready, you guys. Yeah, here we go. Trial by Media. Let's do this. You guys, we're going to play the trailer for the entire series because they don't have individual episode trailers. So right. stay tuned for the trailer for the series Trial by Media. We love you. Uh, we love you. All right, bye. <laughs> bye. <laughs> I found out early on as a lawyer, doesn't matter about the law. It's about being able to tell a story. When you turn a courtroom into a studio, you have to turn reality into a story with good guys, bad guys, drama. You've got to come up with ways to become part of the new cycle. I'm not saying the trials of theater, but court of public opinion is very important. Because if everybody in the building likes these guys, they must be the good guys, right? (laughs) Nobody had committed murder as a result of being on a trash talk show. You use those people. That's not quite the way I see it. I wanted to kill those guys. If it bleeds, it leads. He'd raise me 500 grand, so I made him a senator. He absolutely embraced the media's attention. You ain't seen nothing yet! The NYPD shot someone 41 times. The media didn't have any interest in discussing who he was. Everything was done for the purpose of ratings, and ratings are money. I really wasn't sure that what I was seeing was real. Stop the cameras. Let's let's stop right here.